All right, so today we're looking at five ways that, are, that when we find ourselves in desperate circumstances, five ways that those desperate circumstances can help us to grow, especially grow our faith. And we're looking at that because we're in a series called Jesus the Miracle Worker. It's part of a larger series as we work our way through the New Testament. And today we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, a specific passage where there are two very desperate people who step out in faith And there are some incredible faith lessons that we can learn from this passage. So I'm not sure that without desperation that actually we can even have genuine faith. And let me explain what what I mean by that. Um, If you think of the claims of the gospel on our lives, if you think about the fact that what the gospel calls us to, what God calls us to is a life of total surrender to him. Now, it doesn't happen overnight, but it's a life of more and more surrender to him. It's a life of reorienting the very way we think about ourselves, other people, our life, the future, a reorientation of of our thinking and a reordering of our priorities. When we become followers of Jesus, typically our priorities go from this to this. They get turned upside down. And so there's a reordering of priorities. There is a call from the gospel to live sacrificially, to sacrifice in our lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. Who does that? I mean, really, who does that? The the, the person who does that is usually someone who has reached an end of themselves to some degree. Someone who comes to the point that says, I have no other option. I need to pursue God and faith in Christ, and I am willing to lay everything down. Only desperate people do. The catalyst for a lot of us to come to faith is a desperate situation where we find ourselves in fear of death, in fear of a Christless eternity. Many of you came to faith that way. You were just like, I don't want to die and spend eternity separate from Christ. Now, if that was your motivation for becoming a follower of Jesus, and it did not result in a reordering of priorities, in a reorientation of your mind and your thinking, in a greater surrender to God, a growing surrender to God, a sacrificial life of love, if it didn't result in that, then it wasn't genuine saving faith. It was just a moment. It was just a moment where you were afraid And you thought if you prayed a prayer and said some words to Jesus that you could take care of that problem. It's not genuine saving faith. Not anywhere in the Bible would that be described as genuine saving faith. But if you have genuine saving faith, even if the catalyst is fear, but it then propels you into an intimate relationship of discipleship, of growing in Jesus, well, that happens and has happened to a lot of you uh, in your life. God will use just about anything to get us to, to draw close, close to him. Um, another catalyst oftentimes is we come to an end of ourselves. We pursue whatever it might be, uh, you know, money, sex, power, uh, all the things that revolve around those things. We pursue that and we come to an end of ourselves and we go, okay, 
it's not bringing the, the happiness that I thought. It's a dead end. We see the dead end it is. It's maybe even destroying our lives and the lives of people around us. We come to an end of, our, of ourselves, and we turn to Christ. And when he says sacrifice, we go, yes, it's worth it, because that other way is not worth it. So that's what I mean when I say desperation. Can you have genuine faith, a faith that brings all that change in your life without some sort of desperation? I'm not sure if you can. Desperate circumstances and desperation can also accelerate our growth throughout our lives. And so that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at five ways that our desperate circumstances can grow our faith. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5 if you haven't already. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And if you're using a smartphone or tablet device, we are using the NIV, the New International Version. If you're new with us, uh, hopefully you got a new here brochure on your way in. On the inside is a sermon application guide. And in the sermon application guide, hopefully there is, um, there is, there are some questions on the inside. There's a place to take notes. But on the inside, there's family discussion questions. And so our kids almost every week are studying the same thing we are. They are today studying the same thing we are. So there's some questions that you can, you can use. There's some reflection questions because the goal is not just getting more information into our heads. The goal is to bring the story of God to life in our everyday lives. Um, so let's begin Matthew, Mark chapter 5, beginning verse 21, where it says, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a, huge, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. So a synagogue leader uh, means he was, he was the leader of a local congregation of Jews. Uh, this is separate from the, uh, from the temple, but it was something that had developed over about a couple hundred years, and still today is where... Uh, Jewish people of faith who are living their faith where they gather together is in a synagogue. So he is the synagogue leader. He pleaded earnestly with Jesus, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt her body in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around to the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. She said to her, he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So these are three of the disciples of the 12. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, 
Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and he said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which is Aramaic, the language he would have spoken in everyday life, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to tell anyone, what, not to let anyone know about this, and told them to give her something to eat. All right, so five ways uh, that desperate circumstances can grow our faith. They do when first uh, they move us to action. When they move us to action, our circumstances get us to get, you know, to move from where we are doing maybe nothing with our faith to doing something with our faith. It's a circumstance that the women and Jairus find themselves in that propels them into action, faith action. So without the circumstances, the woman, you know, if she hadn't been ill, at best she probably would have been part of that crowd following Jesus and pressing in on Jesus. Um, but that she, there was more because she had this circumstance, she had this suffering, and it wasn't just her condition. Now, her condition was one that was, uh, created a lot of loneliness because it was a condition that made her ritually unclean. There were, other people could not be in contact with her physically. And so, but that wasn't all it says. Look at verse 25. It says, And a woman was there who was subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So she's not only suffering from the illness that she has, she's also suffering from the cure. The medicine <coughs> in those days was crude and primitive and harsh. And so she's suffering from that, but she's also suffering from paying the doctor. She's gone broke trying to get better, and instead of getting better, she's actually gotten worse. She has nowhere else to go, except that hopefully this Jesus who she knows is a healer, can heal her. Jairus is a synagogue ruler. Um, if not for the health of his daughter, at best, he might be an admirer of Jesus. Uh, it wouldn't be likely that a synagogue ruler would identify with the disciples following around Jesus because their best, uh, their best members would have been the Pharisees. You know, and the Pharisees, as, as a whole, not as every individual, but the Pharisees were very much against Jesus. And so to publicly identify with himself uh, with Jesus is a good way to lose your job, lose your position, lose about everything. So at best, he could be an admirer of Jesus, maybe a secret believer, kind of like Nicodemus the Pharisee, was somewhat of a, of a secret believer. But because of what his daughter is experiencing, he goes public with his faith. And he comes to Jesus and he says, you can do something with this. Both take a huge step of faith because they're in desperate circumstances. So one commentator says this, David Garland. He says, faith is embodied in action. Faith is something that can be seen. Like the man digging through the roof. The man digging through the roof to bring their friend to Jesus. It kneels, begs, and reaches out to touch. 
You see, without desperate circumstances, the kind of faith that digs, digs holes <laughs> in roofs, uh, the, the kind of faith that kneels and begs and reaches out does, doesn't often happen. But when we have desperate circumstances in our life, we, we step out in faith. Secondly, desperate circumstances can grow our faith when it rips off the band-aids, exposing our wounds. Rips off the band-aids, exposing our wounds. Here's what another commentator, this is what David Woodley, he's also a pastor, what he says. He says, both the respected synagogue ruler and the marginal woman seep with an open wound of human need. Money, power, influence, networks, and family status, all of these resources may help us cover our need for a while, but eventually life will rip off our band-aids and expose our wounds. That's what desperate circumstances do. They kind of like rip off the band-aids, the things that, um, that, are, that we try that are not God and are not what God ultimately wants for us, but our ways of trying to fix the wounds in our life, self-inflicted wounds, Wounds inflicted by others because of our broken world. Wounds inflicted by not others sometimes, but just by the way that our world is, our broken world. So we use band-aids to cover up things that need drastic surgery. We need a transplant. We need an infusion. But instead, we put band-aids on the wounds of our inadequacy, our sense of inadequacy, our our anxiety, our emptiness, our grief, our failures, and we just take something to just make ourselves feel better, and they, they, they function like Band-Aids. And it can range. Our Band-Aids can range from um, alcohol to drugs to sexual pleasure to accomplishments um, at work, accomplishments in sports, accomplishments academically or in, in the arts. Uh, it can be making more money. It can be buying newer bigger, better things, shinier things. It can be experiences like travel or whatever. But we try to cover our wounds. It's not that, that many of these things are not necessarily in themselves and in the right context necessarily wrong, but we try to use those things to cover up the pain in our lives and the wounds in our lives. The Band-Aids don't stop the bleeding or heal the wounds. Desperate circumstances kind of rip them off and say, it's not working, is it? because you still have the problem. Unfortunately, most of the time when the Band-Aid is ripped off, the wound is exposed. What we do is we go get another Band-Aid or we go get another brand because Band-Aid is a brand. Yes, 3M people, I know that. <laughs> I said it as many times as I could just to kind of have some fun with you. Somebody came to me last night and said, you know, that's, uh, well, they knew I, I knew that because I said what I'm about to say. But they said, I worked in that division for a while and we were not allowed to say Band-Aid. <laughs> it's a bandage. It's a bandage. You know, it's like um, Kleenex. It's, it's a bathroom tissue. It's, that's, a, that's a brand, all right? So anyways, I know that. Uh, Band-Aid, Band-Aid, Band-Aid. Um, <laughs> so, so we switch brands. Um, I, my, my mom uh, needed a Band-Aid this week, and uh, you know, she lives in an apartment next to us, and, and uh, she can't really get out very much anymore. Or, and uh, she needed a Band-Aid, and I went into her uh, medicine cabinet, which is a very small medicine cabinet, and these are four of the seven or eight boxes of Band-Aids that she had in there, uh, different brands. And I, I understand it. Uh, I took what it, all of them had just a little bit in it, and I consolidated it into the other three boxes. Uh, I understand this because I'm the same way. 
when I have a wound and I put on some kind of bandage and it starts peeling at the sides or falls off within a day or the first time I take a shower or whatever, I get very frustrated. I'm like, there must be a product out there that works. And so um, here's, here's what I've discovered. Many of you have discovered Band-Aids, Band-Aid brand, uh, very difficult to open, right? It's like you tear the Band-Aid half the time. Like, they are still being opened the same way as when I was a little kid. And it didn't work then, it doesn't work now. Except when I was a little kid, it had a little red, red thread, some of you might remember, and you're supposed to tear the package and it always broke. Always broke. I mean, if you got it to go, you're like, yay! Uh, you know, it was like the most amazing thing. Uh, but easy to put on once you get it open. 3M product, neck scare. Uh, I just want to say this right now. This is my favorite, stays on best. Really like it. <laughs> but, easy to open. It's got a little thing on top, and you open it. But then putting it on, you have to watch a YouTube video. <laughs> which is really difficult to do when you're bleeding, you know. So, this is my go-to when I'm bleeding. When I have time for the second one, I go to this. Because then I can, you know, I... Yeah, what is, I don't really, it's weird if you've never used it. So um, consider that feedback. If, how many of you work in this division? We had one last night. Anybody? No? Okay, all right. So you can just, if you work for 3M, you can just take back that feedback to that division. So we take one brand of Band-Aid or bandage, we take one, ba uh, one brand and we just trade it for another and we just keep doing that and life can go on and on and on just going from one brand to another of different ways of covering our wounds, of not really dealing with the brokenness in our lives <clears throat> and not letting God do his work in us. It's all temporary, it's a temporary fix. But when, when it rips off the band-aid, we have an opportunity to turn to God and for our faith to grow and to trust him more with our problems. The third way that desperate circumstances grow our faith is um, when it leads us to intimacy with Christ. So one of the interesting features of this text is that there are all these people crowding in on Jesus, they're pressing in on him, and Jesus stops and says, somebody, touch, who touched me? And of course the disciples say, crazy question. Like, there are all kinds of people touching you, but he keeps looking until the woman says, uh, it was me, and explains what, what happened. And it's kind of a metaphor. It's a great metaphor of how it is oftentimes in faith that so many of us are part of the crowd, and we're even pressing in on Jesus. We may believe in him. We may participate in a church. We may read our Bibles and everything, but many times we don't actually touch him and experience him. So you got these crowds, they're all like waiting for Jesus to teach, waiting for another miracle, but this lady, she has a desperate circumstance and she reaches out and touches him and she experiences his power. And sometimes it takes desperate circumstances to get us to the point where we stop being just part of the crowd and we move in close, close to Jesus. Desperate circumstances can grow our faith when it overcomes our cynicism. So when Jesus arrives at Jairus' house, he meets people who are rather cynical about what Jesus has to say. Now, I don't blame them. Uh, I don't blame them at all. It, in fact, just on the surface, you look at it, it says, kind of insensitive. 
of him to just barge in there and just say, no, she's just sleeping. And she's not, she's dead. But he says she's just sleeping because he's about to, he's about to resuscitate her uh, back to life. But cynicism is something that moves, it, it moves into our faith really, really easily. Um, especially in the world that we live in now, we can become extremely cynical about our faith. And cynicism is a faith killer. Paul Miller, in his book, The Praying Life, spends four chapters on cynicism. In a book on prayer, four chapters on cynicism because it is a faith killer. Cynicism is a faith killer. I want to quickly share with you three things that he says in those four chapters. He says a lot more, but I want to just summarize three things that stand out to me from those chapters. He says, uh, he says first of all, Jesus calls us to childlike faith. Cynicism is the opposite of childlike faith. You ever met a cynical young child? <laughs> I don't think you have. Uh, but cynicism uh, is, is like the opposite of that. It's right, like, you know, kind of smug, looking at, at something, not believing that God can be at work, kind of questioning everything that everybody believes and all that sort of thing. Miller says this, both the child and the cynic walk through the valley of shadow of death. The cynic focuses on the darkness. The child focuses on the shepherd. The cynic, everybody goes through darkness. Some go through greater darkness than others. The cynic focuses on the darkness. The child focuses on the shepherd who's going with us through that. Second thing he says, faith is hard. Cynicism is easy. It's easy to be a critic. It's easy to critique other people's faith, your church's faith, critique the Bible, whatever it is, critique Jesus. It's easy to critique. It doesn't take, contrary to, to what you might think, it doesn't take a lot of depth to be a cynic. It doesn't take a lot of insight. It's easy to make fun and poke fun at things. Really, really, really easy. Now, something I didn't say at the beginning of this is all of us are cynics. It, it's, it's a continuum. All of us are cynics. And all of us struggle with it at one time or another more than others. Okay, so I'm not pointing a finger at anybody. I'm, I'm talking about cynicism seeping into us and how desperate circumstances can help us overcome that cynicism because it's a faith killer. It's, it's destructive. So it's easy to critique. It's hard to go through a difficulty and to go through that dark valley and to trust God in the midst of that. That's really hard. That's really difficult. Third thing he says is cynics claim to see through things but end up seeing nothing. So um, what a cynic does is oftentimes, and when we're being cynical, what we say is, I see what's really going on. I see through that person. I see through that thing. I see what's really going on here. Um, the, the problem, Miller says, though, is that anything that um, the cynic actually never sees through it to anything. I see through it. I see what's going on, but never gets to anything real. So this, this is what he writes. I, don't ha I have this whole quote in your outlines, I think. Uh, but uh, I only have part of it that I'll put up on the screen. So just listen. 
Cynics imagine they are disinterested observers on a quest for authenticity. They assume they are humble because they offer, no, I don't have anything, I don't have really anything to offer you, I just, I just know that's, that's, that's bogus. <coughs> In fact, they feel deeply superior because they think they see through everything. C.S. Lewis points out that if you see through everything, you eventually see nothing. You cannot go, seeing, go on seeing through things forever. This is part I put on the screen. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. That's the problem with like, when we're just cynical about everything. We're, not, we're saying we're seeing through, but it's actually it's an invisible world. It's like you're not, we're not seeing through anything. Lewis said that what was required was a restoration of the innocent eye, the eye that can see with wonder. I, I'm reading a book right now by one of my favorite authors, Mike Cosper. can't remember the title of it right now. Um, but in that book, um, his whole book is about recovering wonder. And, he's, and, it, and the whole introduction of the book uh, deals with the fact that we live in a world where wonder, supernatural, God has been you know, systematically kind of taken out of the equation. And when we talk about God, people say, oh, that's a personal opinion, or that can be explained in other ways. And because we breathe that same air and our, I mean, we watch the television, we hear the news, everything that we read, the books that we read, it's all that air. And so what happens is with, with all that air, thank you so much, um, with all that air, what, what happens is, um, is that we begin to become cynical as well, and we, we lose a sense of, of wonder. Uh, <laughs> last night, um, my mom probably has a ringing going on in her ears, but she was sure that there were people outside of her window singing, men. Uh, she told me. I keep saying, it's 10 o'clock at night. It's not. It's something in your ears and sounds in the house, maybe the air conditioning and, um, and that sort of thing. So I, I told Lois about it a little later, and she says, well, maybe it's angels. Now, she was kind of kidding, you know, about it. But when you have a sense of wonder, you go, could be. I'm not, like, going to be naive and say it can't be ringing in her ears because that's probably what it is. But, you see, we would explain away. We'd say, well, it wouldn't be angels. As soon as we do that, we've taken wonder out of our world. Could be. Could be angels. And so that's what that book, it's, it's like every chapter gives you disciplines to recover wonder in your life. And that's what C.S. Lewis was getting at here. saying we have to recover an innocent eye. It doesn't have to be an ignorant eye, but an innocent eye. That if God is real, then there should be that sh the realness of God should be taken into consideration in everything that we experience and everything that we do. So sometimes desperate circumstances are the only way it breaks through. Um, there probably is, is no better way to overcome cynicism that, than to either go through desperate circumstances where you absolutely need God. Doesn't mean you'll turn to God, but maybe you will. Uh, the other way is to look into the darkness of your own heart. <laughs> 
The cynic will just look in the mirror when we're being cynical and look into our own heart and see through to what's actually there and then look at the grace of God. And that can recover wonder. That can recover wonder. Desperate circumstances grow our faith. Fifth, last, when it prompts greater dependence on God. You ever noticed? Okay, I'm about to say the most obvious thing. You ever noticed that when you are in desperate circumstances, you pray more? <laughs> That's what desperate circumstances do. They cause us to lean more into God. They create greater de- dependence on, on God. So, um, here's the thing. We're always living in de- desperate circumstances. We don't, we don't have to wait for things to kind of start caving in on our lives. We are always living in desperate circumstances. One way to put it is, from a scriptural standpoint, without God's grace, right now, we would be struck by the hammer of God's justice. God isn't just God. We've taken this beautiful world that he has, and all the things that we blame God for is our making. We've taken a beautiful world, we've taken a life that he's given us, and every single one of us has dirtied it, sullied it, broken it worse than it already is, every single one of us. We live under the desperate circumstances that if not for the grace of God, the hammer of God's justice would end our lives. We are traitors of God the King. We are traitors of God's kingdom. Let me ask you a question. This was an easy question for people last night to answer. A little bit more difficult for you. Because it's morning. Have you sinned yet today? Have you sinned yet today? Um, Another way to put it, if you want to really get to it. um, Have you sinned yet today in thought, in word, or in deed? Or another way to put it is, did you fail at any time today to love sacrificially by putting, you failed by putting yourself first, your own needs first, your own desires first, over against someone else's needs and desires or God's desires for us. Has that happened yet today? Raise your hand. No, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. (laughs) It'd be embarrassing if you didn't. It's only by God's common grace to humanity that we didn't die on the spot when Adam and Eve, that the humanity didn't end when Adam and Eve sinned. It's only by his common grace, and it's only by the grace that we have in Jesus Christ in a relationship with him that our relationship with him is not severed right now because of our continuing sins. It's only by his grace. We live in desperate circumstances. The Bible says we are live in such desperate circumstances that we need his grace in order to begin a relationship with him. We need his grace. The Bible speaks about the need for the for grace every single day. We are it says we are being saved. Excuse me. <clears throat> we are being saved. We're not just saved, we're being saved and we will be saved by his grace on the day that we come face to face with God and are accountable for the life that we lived. This passage gives us a really interesting foreshadowing. Um, 
of, of God's grace and of, of Jesus on the cross and of Jesus dying. It's interesting because something unusual happens in this passage. It doesn't happen in the Gospels anywhere. Um, and it's what happens in verse 30. The woman touches his cloak. And it says that once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. Now, you might think that Jesus felt a draining of power. <clears throat> but that's highly unlikely. Uh, Jesus uh, doesn't get drained of power by speaking the words of power. I mean, God created the universe. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit created the entire universe simply by speaking it. It wasn't drained by doing that. Jesus isn't drained. Maybe in his humanity, you know, we don't know. Uh, but we don't see him exerting himself like, Ah, whenever he heals people or walking away limping because he healed some people. I mean, there were days when, you know, there'd be 5,000 people there at one of the feedings that he did, and it says he just healed people all day long until it came to the end of the day, and he said these people are hungry. So he doesn't get drained by that. Doubtfully, he was drained. But this idea of being drained of power does foreshadow Jesus on the cross because on the cross, he is drained of all his human power, all of his human strength. And he sets aside, he sets aside the, um, his, his divine power when he goes to the cross. His body is broken for us. His blood is shed for us. Here's what it says in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So are you... Do you find yourself in a desperate circumstance? Some of you can very tangibly say, yes, right now, I need God to bring healing, or I'm done. I need God to intervene, or financially, I'm finished. You're at the end of your rope. You're emotionally exhausted because you're taking care of someone you love, and it's exhausting you. And you're desperate in that way, but every single one of us is desperate. Every single one of us is in desperate circumstances. And when we find ourselves there, we can turn away from God. Or we can lean into him and embrace the one who is willing to choose to enter our desperate circumstances. And who will one day make everything right. There will be no desperation anymore. Please join me in prayer.